This is the Success Coaching Podcast with hosts Todd Foster, Alyssa Stanley, and Kelly Scar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Success Coaching Podcast. My name is Alyssa Stanley, and I am here with co-hosts Todd Foster and Kelly Scar. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Shane Wenzel. Welcome. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Shane, thanks for uh, joining us today, man. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'm excited for this podcast. Number one, because it's, you know, we're both Calgarians. Of course, I've I've made a a shift now back to BC, but, uh, you know, from the same town, from the same city. And so excited to talk to a fellow Calgarian. you know, I, I heard this intro on a, on a different podcast. Uh, Patrick Bet David um, was interviewing uh, one of his guests, and he the way that he started the podcast was really quite intriguing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to uh, you know start our podcast off kind of the same way. And so um, what I'm interested in, and in, in you know, we love it when our guests kind of talk about their background, their past, and kind of do an intro. But what I want you to do is take us back to like grade ten. And tell us the type of person that Shane was in grade 10 and why we would want to be friends with Shane and then kind of move us forward uh, through your path and into uh, present day. Uh, Shane in grade 10, uh, you know, was a wee bit geeky, but, you know, acid wash jeans were in and, uh, you know, so were, uh, you know, so were shirts with a bunch of images on it. And, uh, you know, I jumped on that train pretty good. But uh, no, I, uh, you know, in high school, I was probably, you know, I wouldn't be considered, say, the in crowd, so to speak. Uh, you know, I just kind of kind of kept to myself. I had my small group of friends and, uh, you know, we had fun together. You know, if you ask me, you know, was I was I planning on being a home builder then? No, I had no idea. Like every kid at that age, you know, you, you had, you know, all you could think of is, you know, oh, God, I got to go to school tomorrow. Yeah. But, you know, you accelerate, uh, you, know, you know, a couple of years later and, uh, you know, reality starts setting in where you've got to make a decision as to, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to post-secondary education or are you going to hop right into the workforce? And uh, I ended up hopping right into the workforce. I, uh, I started working with, uh, with my mother, who has a market research company and still does to this date. Uh, you know, just, uh, just working, helping out in the, uh, the call room, uh, in evenings and, uh, and, uh, and during the day. And then after about six months, I, uh, I came to work for, uh, for my father. I worked under him as a, uh, as a marketing assistant and kind of learning, uh, learning how the business worked that way. So I'd like to ask a question for you, Shane. I noticed that it's called Shane Holmes, which yes. I'm assuming that it was named after you. Mm-hmm. Were you ever felt forced or pressured into getting into the company since the company was named clearly after you? Uh, yes and no. Uh, no in the sense that it was never expected. Yes, in the sense that, you know, I, I know it was always my father's hope, but, uh, you know, he wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to force it unless I actually had a, a, a passion to be involved with the company. So when did that passion come along? Was it when you were 14 or were you 10 or did you come out of the womb and say, I can't wait to be a home builder? <laughs> I don't think anybody comes out of the womb that way. <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, it really kind of hit me, uh, you know, as, uh, as we were in, or rather as I was in high school, that, you know, this would be kind of a cool career because I was more creative, uh, more artistic, uh, had more of that marketing background and uh, the rest I could, uh, I could certainly learn, but. Uh, coming into the company gave me an opportunity to kind of flex that creativity still. And uh, honestly, to this date, uh, I think my mom's still mad at me because I didn't pursue a career in comic book art. 
or in broadcasting, which is what she thought I should pursue. Well, you got the voice for it. Apparently, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was disappointed that way. But I was uh, I was more than happy to get involved with the company because I could flex that creativity more so. So the company was founded by your father back in 1979. Mm-hmm. It looked like there was a goal of selling 50 homes in the first year. And there were five that actually were sold. And it yes. took a couple of years to get there. With your father running the company at the time and with his experience in basically building homes and marketing as well. At what point did you realize or did he realize that it was time for you to take the reins over? Uh, I would say about 10 years ago because he was getting sick and tired of being in the day-to-day operations. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, like any executive or any leader, uh, you know, you have a, uh, you do have a shelf life where you, uh, you just don't want to change anymore. You don't want to learn anymore. Uh, and, uh, I think that was kind of the, uh, the turning point for him. You know, he wanted to be more visionary. He wanted to work on different things, uh, within the group of companies and, and, uh, you know, he felt I was ready and I felt I was as well. So, Shane, I'm curious. And you just said that you felt you were ready as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think anytime you transition within a business, there is some sort of period where you have to adjust and get used to your new role. Did that take a while or did you since you'd been in that business, did you just jump in and take it over like a boss? I, uh, you know, I think it takes a while. I, uh, you know, I dove right into it. You know, I, uh, I was certainly spending more hours uh, in the role and, uh, and learning as much as I could. But uh, I think the biggest thing that I found was that, you know, I'm a different leader than what my father is. Uh, you know, he jokingly makes the comment that his leadership style is that of a passive dictator. <laughs> I, uh, I honestly make, uh, make a comment, uh, you know, that my style is, uh, is say, more, uh, more collaborative. Or I think the buzzword that people like to use now is democratic in a way. And, uh, you know, because of that, you know, it requires different, uh, you know, different leaders even below you on your executive team because they're used to working with Cal. Uh, they're used to working within his strengths and his weaknesses. And mine are completely different than what his are. So it was, uh, I would say, comfortably, it probably took about three, four years to make, uh, make a solid transition. So it, under a dictatorship, it becomes quite easy to be able to, you know, mold the underlings to the new vision of, of the new dictator, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, it's either you fall in line or you're gone. Yes. So I'm interested in the democratization of, uh, of the leadership, you know, from the top down. How, how from a leader's perspective, were you able to, you know, craft the vision, uh, and bring those leaders kind of into that vision and, and get them you know, kind of on board with, with the style and, and the way that you were going to lead these, lead this company. It takes a while because now you're, uh, you're trying to empower them to, uh, to make decisions rather than always coming to you for the answers. And I don't mean, you know, passive dictatorship for my father is a slight towards them. That was what was, what was needed for a growing company up to a certain volume level. And, uh, and, and as I transitioned into the presidency, all of a sudden, you know, the single family homes are, are, are selling about five to 600 a year. You've got a multifamily division and you've got a land division as well. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, they, what, what he had started with was, was considerably smaller and, uh, and this is now considerably larger, <laughs> but the, 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 the only way I could do it was, was to have leaders below me again, that, you know, I had imp- had to empower to make the proper decisions or I would, I, like I jokingly say to people, I would never go home. I'd be here 24 hours a day. 
you know, no one can be that way. Uh, yeah, you have to, you have to allow, you know, people to, uh, you know, I guess earn their paycheck and uh, earn their stripes, so to speak. You know, you have to allow them to make those big decisions along with you. I'd like to uh, follow up on what you said about going home. Since this is a family-run business and we know dynamics in families are always fascinating in the first place. And when you're working really close, I mean, really close, and you're almost like two styles of leadership between you and your father. Yes. How do you keep that going without not not visiting each other on your off time or avoiding each other in the hallways or because it sounds like most people, when you think about it, they think, oh, it's going to be great to work in family. We love each other, yada, yada, yada. And the reality hits. So how have you guys kept this together for so long? Uh, you know, well, I guess because we've always gotten along. We, we have a good working relationship. But, but that's not to say that we don't, uh, we don't end up butting heads. Of course we do. We, uh, we probably butt heads over something once a month. Again, you're, uh, you're, you're dealing with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the architect of all of this. And, uh, you know, he's, he's still very passionate about the business. Uh, you know, but he, uh, he can't understand why some of the things have changed. And, uh, you know, I mean, with regards to a family-based business, uh, it's not for the faint of heart either. You know, working with family is, uh, is, is probably more difficult than working in a regular business because we can't avoid each other. We do get together for dinners. We do get together for special family events. So, you know, we do have to keep things real, but uh, it's, uh, it's tough not to butt heads. What's the one thing you recommend to someone if they are thinking about getting a family business and making it successful? What's the one thing? Actually, there's two questions. What's one thing you should do and what's the one thing you shouldn't do? Uh, the one thing you should do is uh, come up with a code of conduct for family right up front. I learned that from a good friend of mine from uh, from Tech Canada. Uh, and really, that just kind of outlines what uh, what the expectations are, because as you can appreciate in a family business, uh, not every family member works out and you're going to have to at some point in time fire them. So at least if you have a code of conduct in place, everybody understands what the rules of engagement are. And uh, because of that, I think uh, that makes things a lot easier when you're having discussions. But with that said, you do have to have those discussions quite regularly. You know, you can't, uh, can't just pass in the halls every, uh, every couple of weeks. No, you have, to, you have to sit down, you have to talk. You know, communication is, uh, is one of the most crucial things in a business, but it's more important in a family-based business. Uh, you shouldn't do... Uh, don't expect your family to be all your employees in your company. That is ridiculous. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, I still believe that, you know, family businesses are good, but you do have to separate family and business. So don't expect everybody in the family to, uh, to come in and work and work especially as hard as what you're prepared to. Shane, I want to go back to um, what we were talking about when you had the kind of changing of the guards and you had to take over in a different environment and um, kind of change all that around. You had used a really um, important word here. You had said that you wanted to empower your leaders to essentially lead better and step into their roles. Um, I take that as you wanted to empower them to work in the community that you were trying to build rather than dictate how they were going to come to work and how they were going to perform their jobs. Um that's huge to me because so many own business owners and people in leadership positions just, well, I'm the leader and I'm the boss and you're going to do this. And that creates such a toxic work environment. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it is easy to go in and be like, here's what you're going to do. A, B, C, D, do it, report back to me. Empowering them takes a lot more work. Sure it does, but it's probably the smartest thing you can do. Absolutely. So if someone is in that same position and they are sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, well, I guess, you know, that makes sense. I would rather empower those in my company that are leaders, but I don't know how. How would you describe that process of empowering someone rather than dictating them? Uh, well, in some cases, you've got to start over with different people. Uh, again, you know, the people that, uh, that my father was used to working with weren't, uh, weren't necessarily used to being empowered to, to, to perform their duties, to perform their job. Yeah, so in some cases, you've got to make the change and you've got to hire the right person and hire them with, with the right attitude in mind is it? Yeah, and I, it, it may seem silly, and yeah, I know some people think it is, but, you know, I use the example of if I die in a fiery car crash tomorrow, can you take your job and run with it? Can you make the decisions that, you know, that I used to and that you need to and keep this business afloat? And, I mean, I, I do that more for shock value just to, just to kind of imply to people is that, you know, if I disappear tomorrow, what happens then? Yeah, so they realize that, you know, I'm quite serious when I say that, you know, I, I'm empowering you to make decisions. We're just we're, we're just going to have conversations quite regularly about it. And, you know, and I'm trying not I'm going to not try to step on your uh, your toes, but I'm just I'm going to be that kind of de facto coach in the background. And that seems to uh, that seems to work when you're transitioning people that way. Or like I said, you have to hire different people who can work under you that way. Yeah. Well, we've got a few podcasts now without me uh, mentioning uh, Navy SEALs or uh, military doctrine. Or <laughs> so I think it's time to bring that back into the conversation again. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that I'm fascinated with with uh, mindset and and especially the Navy SEAL culture and and this idea of, of what you're describing, Shane, in, in decentralized command, mm -hmm. right? Allowing the people to make decisions on the ground uh, in real time to be able to move the company forward. Mm -hmm. I think that if you have a leadership of a company that are all tied into the same vision of that company, it becomes very easy then to empower those leaders underneath you to be able to operate within that uh, ideology of decentralized command. Convince me that I'm wrong. I can't convince you that you're wrong because you're absolutely right. I, I was, I guess I was saying that more or less tongue in cheek, right? I mean, convince, the, convince me that I'm wrong because I, I, I don't think that I am. But, you know, I think it kind of begs to, to you know, have a conversation around that. No, you're not wrong. Uh, you're completely right. And to be honest, we uh, we purchased uh, purchased the assets of one company because of that. You know, and I think it's the best example around that I have. Uh, you know, the owner of the company was uh, was the big cog in the machine. You know, he didn't have anybody behind him. He wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, he wouldn't empower anybody in his organization because he didn't have the people around him that he could trust. And what happened was that owner got sick with cancer and eventually passed away in that company. And all 73 employees were shuttled. Wow. wow. You know, so that's how quickly it can happen. And this happened all within a matter of uh, eight months. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's a good reminder that, uh, that you can't be that most important cog in the wheel. You do have to have other, uh, other cogs. That way, if, uh, if one falls out, you can, you can try to replace that, uh, that, uh, that cog or that person. You know, and I'm no different as a leader. I can't be expected to, uh, 
to be the all and everything for the company. I need leaders around me that if something were to happen, if I was incapacitated for a while, that, you know, uh, that they can pick it up and they can run with it. Well, let's let's fix the world right now. Um, <laughs> let's just, you know, uh, let's jump into politics a little bit, because I know that's one of your passions. And let's talk. Let's talk about, you know, how uh, the leadership I think, you know, let's, let's talk specific to Calgary for, for a quick second. Right now, the city of Calgary is going through a municipal election. Um, the mayor of that city has been, he was in power for what, 10 years, 11 years, something like that. 11 at the end of the day. Yeah. 11 years. Yeah. And you know, there are a couple of different, uh, people that are, uh, you know, touted as front runners, but you know, I've, I've, I've followed the election from, from Kelowna and, you know, quite closely. And it seems to me that there really aren't a lot of leaders per se in the group that are, are running. Um, you know, give me, give me an example of, of, you know, from a leadership perspective, what a municipal, provincial, state, uh, you know, federal leader, some of the qualities that they should be employing right now, especially in 2021, to actually lead and inspire a populace as, a, as opposed to, uh, you know, divide and, you know, potentially conquer, I guess, is, you know, depending on which way you want to look at things. Well, politics is uh, is somewhat similar and somewhat different than a business, in, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you know, when it comes down to leadership at that level, you need somebody with strong communication skills. Uh, there's, there's, there's gotta be someone who, uh, who can really build relationships because you're working with other counselors and they're all from, uh, you know, from different ends of the spectrum. So how do you bring them together, uh, and, uh, and make not only the most of your time, but make the most right decisions possible. You know, you've got to be able to help, uh, I'd say coach them. Uh, you know, kind of bring them along in their role and uh, and show them why uh, your way is the better way. Uh, you know, but there's got to be, uh, I guess, a strong, uh, a stronger background even in uh, planning because you are playing around with a city of uh, of a million three people and a four point three billion dollar budget. You know, it would be nice if, uh, if somebody there actually had uh, had some understanding of what a financial statement is or a balance sheet. Uh, but then, uh, you know, really uh, kind of problem solving. And, and that requires tremendous listening skills. You know, that ties back to uh, communication. And if you don't have that, you don't have the proper leader. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we've been suffering from that for a while. So, I mean, you have a new batch of people running for, uh, for mayor. There, in my opinion, is 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 probably two or three of the top ten that uh, that have the ability to do that. But again, that all uh, that all comes back to the composition of council. At least from my my side of it, I can I can pick my executive and my managers. You can't there. I mean, that's uh, that's a that's a bigger challenge all in itself. So. You've got to be able to bring people together more importantly. Yeah, I think part of that problem is the the erosion of ideas being brought forward and, you know, coupled with the, the, the rise in populism. Right. Um, you know, yes. and, you know, populism, a lot of people look at populism or populist uh, ideology as, as being a negative. I think there's some positives to it, but ultimately it's, you know, somebody standing up there talking about popular ideas that maybe some people are afraid to talk about not necessarily having any sort of solution uh, backed behind that, right? So just throwing the idea out there, but without offering any sort of a solution is just 
it's it's noise. That's all that it is. And so I think you've got this rise of, of, of populism right now across North America, if not across the Western Western Hemisphere, um, without real any any real solutions, um, you know, thrown against the wall to see if anything sticks. All that we're all that we're listening to, all that we're hearing from these so-called leaders out there is that, you know, they're they're going to throw this idea out there. <clears throat> you know, I'll give you an example, Trudeau. Um, not, this yeah. isn't an anti-Trudeau or pro-Trudeau. It's just a factual statement, right? He campaigned uh, on certain things to do with our electorate and how people are elected in this country, not once, but twice, sure. right? And the, the mm-hmm. first time he campaigned on it, he did nothing about it. The second time he campaigned on it was just recently. Now, is he going to do anything about yes. it? Probably not, right? But it was this idea that he threw out there that's popular and people say, Hey, I'm going to elect that guy or that girl because it's a popular idea, but without any solution backing it up. Right. You know, there is a solution. He just doesn't want to enact right. it. Uh, you know, cause it doesn't work out in his favor. You know, I just relate that to, okay, you just lied to get elected. Right. We've talked about indigenous, uh, indigenous people and what they have to do on the reserves for a number of years. That was another part of the campaign and nothing's come of it. But you know, with that said, I can, I can, I could pick on every political party that way. Mm-hmm. I'd like to bring back up something you said about leadership or business is like politics. And so, uh, you know, politics, sports, whatever it is, we all have our favorite teams. And yet in leadership in a company, you're making some popular decisions and some very unpopular decisions based on how people perceive it. Also, there's a little bit of acting involved too. I think you have to be a character. Uh, you know, you have to sell the idea. And you have to market yourself. So I'm going to go back to when you were helping your mother market. It looks like it's really helped you building the company, not just now in the past, also in the future. A true leader, you brought up many things uh, over and over. Coaching was a big one, right? And also empowering people. And so when you took over the company or your name is as the president now, and you had to conform those people into changing ways they were doing things and have them buy into you. How did you encourage them that your way was the right way and that the old way of doing things just need to be changed? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think the best one is probably uh, is probably this, you know, and this is where you end up changing people. Uh, you know, we, we, we had a module that, uh, that, that we would call we called build and price. And uh, our industry is probably one of the last few industries to put their pricing online for the consumer to see. I don't know why we're just, we've, we've traditionally been behind in, in home building and development for, for 50, 60 years. I had a great vision, you know, for building price and we, we got it together. We implemented it and with the wrong people in place, it got turned off about five years ago. Only now are we revisiting it, but with, uh, with new champions, new leaders rather, and, uh, you know, those are the people who bought into the vision. That's that it, it, today, uh, the people who didn't buy into the vision totally, uh, were from five years ago. And I guess, you know, I'll take the blame for that because, you know, I, I even knew at the time that they weren't buying into it. I was trying to sell them on the idea, except, you know, they kept listening to the wrong people. They kept listening to our salespeople who were sitting there saying, we're giving away too much. We don't like it. Our competitors are shopping us online. Well, why does every other industry do it now? You have transparency and pricing through the biggest organization in Amazon. You know, as, as a parallel, you have uh, pricing available for, for new vehicles online. So, 
we can't do this in home pricing because truthfully, we're 80 percent the same. We're 20 percent different. And the 20 percent really comes down to the values and the services provided in the organization. So you can't tell me it doesn't work. So here we are five years later doing the exact same thing with the uh, different leadership uh, below me and they buy into it a hundred percent and it's working out tremendously well. So what I heard you say is you had people buy into your vision and the people that bought in the vision are there and then you had to change even the guard. So yes. it, it proves as something you said in the past that you need to fire people ever so often. Right. And oh, for sure you, you yeah. And you can't really change one. You can, possibly change their vision to match yours. Yet, if they're not the right person for that right job, it's okay to fire that person. Absolutely. It is. There's a, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, as it's uh, sure as uh, even, you know, I mentioned earlier on that my father has a shelf life and uh, you know, and even he acknowledges that I have a shelf life in my role as well. At some point in time, I just won't be prepared to change. Uh, and it's no different than, you know, the, uh, the executive or the management or, or any of the staff members, they have a shelf life as well. They're, they're happy, they're comfortable in their job and doing things the way that they always do them. And the minute you change it, they're either people you can grow with or you can't grow with them at all. And then it's time for them to go. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Yet it might be the unpopular decision at the time. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we all have to make unpopular decisions. We have to do it at home, not only at work, but we have to do it at home. <laughs> if you're enjoying this episode, please rate, review, and follow the Success Coaching Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You know, this topic of conversation of whether or not to let people go makes me think of something I read several times um, <clears throat> regarding you. And I don't know, you call it a mantra or a tagline from what it appears to me as something you live very firmly by and it's earn it, don't expect it, right? Absolutely, yes. So I'm curious to know, is that something that, is that like a thought process you developed? Is it something your dad taught you? Where did that come from? Uh, that came from years of being in business. Mm -hmm. That came from, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, hundreds of different people in different roles and uh, and running into some who who just, would sit. I, I guess the best example would be somebody on a career path who uh, who didn't get the job role they wanted in five years, and you're or in two years rather. Let's use that as an example. Uh, well, they expected that role, and you and you sit there and say, "But you didn't do the things that you needed to do to you know, to to elevate yourself to uh, to move up the uh, into that role," and consequently they leave. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, so you just you, you keep thinking of that. It keeps going around in your mind. And, and that's where the uh, the tagline earn it, don't expect it comes in uh, in the line. You know, yeah. you, you have to earn that uh, that promotion. You can't just expect it. Is that something you use within empowering leaders? That's something you kind of teach because people can be in business for years and years and years. That doesn't mean they adapt the earn it, don't expect it. So is that something that you make sure you help empower your leaders to understand? Absolutely. Yes. You know, they, uh, they, again, we, uh, we, we communicate quite regularly. Uh, we, uh, we, we have our monthly management meetings. We have our uh, biannual uh, strategic planning sessions, but I have one-on-one -on -one conversations with, uh, with each of my direct reports. Uh, so my, the executive team uh, every two weeks, 
and we might spend 15 minutes talking. We might spend an hour talking about, you know, what their goals are and where they're going. So that's why I say, you know, being a leader is, is also being a bit of a coach at yeah. the same time. Yep. But you do have to communicate quite regularly or, you know, I mean, something could go off the rails. Mm-hmm. So, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I want to bring it back again to uh, the market research company that, that your mother had. Um, now, was that yes. a marketing company or it was just market research? Like you mentioned you were on the phones in the evenings and, and making these calls. I'm, yes. I'm imagining, uh, you know, the call center in the Wenzel family basement, uh, you know, or maybe she had an <laughs> office. I don't know. It's kind of the way that you described it. But, um, you know, it, you'd said that your, your passion for marketing was born out of that. So can you connect the dots for us there a little bit? Uh, well, again, I've always had a creative side, but, uh, you know, being able to attach the market research side of things uh, just really quite kind of opens up your mind to the fact that, you know, your opinion may not be fact, that, uh, that you have to, you have to poll people, you have to find out where, uh, where their, where their thoughts are at and, and formulate, formulate the answer. And, you know, it may not be the answer that you expect. So that was the fun part about learning about market research. And, you know, it's, I guess that's why I always get a kick out of it when people ask uh, or, or when they come back with a different report. You, you know, some of the first questions out of my mouth are, what was the methodology? You know, what size was the group? What size was the sample size? <laughs> you start going through it and, and, and you sit there and you catch people sometimes because they don't expect those questions. You know, but I'm also, you know, because of that knowledge, I'm able to sit there and say, well, that's bullshit. You know, you didn't do it properly. So, of course, you, you got the you got the answer that you wanted. I'm looking for the answer that people are prepared to give when when you're not leading them in a certain direction. Right. You know, so that was a valuable tool, a valuable lesson for me to learn. And I still apply it even today. Right. Well, I mean, from a marketing perspective, you have to when you're multi running a multi million dollar company, you have to understand the numbers. You can't just go off of a, a gut feeling and and think that this is going to be you know good for the marketplace when you know potential research could show that it's it's going to be an absolute flop, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, go back to my comment about building price for our industry. I knew that that was valid. That was something that people wanted 13 years ago. And it stayed on our our internal surveys with our customers all that time. And it never changed. It just, you know, the numbers of people who wanted this kind of transparency just kept growing and growing and growing. So why wouldn't we accommodate that? Do you think that you were just too early to market for that? Or do you think it was just you didn't have the right leadership in place to make it successful? Like was I guess I guess the, the greater question is, was there pressure coming from inside the industry to to shut you guys down and saying, we want to keep the information held close to our chest. Uh, well, I would agree with the first two. Uh, there was there was internal pressure, and uh, you know it was maybe too early to market. Uh, where the opportunity came in again is over the last nineteen months during COVID, where people got stuck at home during lockdowns, and they uh, it didn't matter what age group you were in, you learned to shop online more. So shopping for a new home online, are we going to get people to buy single family homes online exclusively? No, that'll take time. But I can honestly say that we've had four of them over the last uh, 16 months now where people didn't even go into a show home. They just made, they made contact with us online, picked a model, picked a lot, and we, we did everything right down to color selections in our design center with an iPad. <laughs> you know, so, 
there are people who are prepared to do that, uh, you know, whether it be uh, uh, fear of, uh, of COVID and transmission that way, or they just, they like the convenience of it. Right. Well, I was going to, I was going to try to tie in some social media stuff, like from a marketer's perspective, um, you know, Oh seven, you know, Facebook, I think I got onto Facebook in 2007. Twitter was shortly thereafter. I don't have quite the following that Shane Wenzel does, but you know, from a, from a marketing perspective, uh, what are your thoughts on social media and, and, uh, and, and marketing and, and business building? Considering that you, you've got kind of influencer numbers on some of these different platforms. It's a requirement moving forward. Uh, you know, I, uh, not, not only, I, I hopped on in 2009, 2010, uh, you know, I had to figure out, I actually started off, I had to figure out how this was influencing an election, you know, so I got onto Twitter as kind of a, kind of a lark and uh, it just kind of stuck. Uh, Instagram was actually, uh, you know, a competition between my son and I at the time because he convinced me to set up an account. So every couple of weeks when he would come over to my house, he, uh, he would ask, you know, how you doing for, uh, for followers? And, you know, I'd say seven and he'd say 37. And he, you know, this kept going, you know, I'd say, you know, 19, he'd say 211. And, you know, so finally the third week he showed up, I, uh, he asked the same question. I said, I have 292 followers. How, how, how could you do that? How could you? I said, well, I guess I just learned how it works. Truth of the matter is I bought 250 followers just because I was pissed off at him. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, LinkedIn followed there and, uh, you know, Facebook and you play around with those different platforms. And, you know, to be honest, there wasn't a lot of education. There wasn't a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of anything at the time that you could learn from other than, you know, picking up hints and tips from people out there. And, you know, I know quite a few influencers here, even locally or, or uh, around the country, around the world that, uh, that I actually converse with and learn a little bit more from them every day. Uh, you know, so there's been benefits that way, but, uh, you know, moving forward, I've even encouraged our, our, our salespeople and a few of the other people in the company to just get on it because that's where you're prospecting moving forward. People have to know who you are. And, you know, this is, this is the way of actually showing them who you are, not just the business, you, the real, you, the authentic, you. Yeah. Kelly's on my space. He's one of the two left. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and my husband, Matt, uh, I think you both have MySpace accounts. <laughs> <laughs> You said something really interesting and not to monopolize a conversation here, Todd and Melissa, but, um, you know, you'd mentioned from a leadership perspective, being on social media is, is going to be essential moving forward. And you had talked a little bit about authenticity, maybe talk about it from a leader's perspective, why a leader should be on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the benefit for having that leader on these platforms? Well, again, I guess, you know, you can associate the, uh, the individual with the, uh, with the corporate values and, and what they really represent there. But uh, it also humanizes the brand. It humanizes the individual because they're people, too. And I think you've seen, uh, seen it in a lot of cases where, uh, you know, radio personalities, TV personalities, uh, journalists, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people from different walks of life have been, uh, have been mobbed even on social media for for their opinions, you know, and in some cases you're going to get that, uh, you know, but I think it's no different than real life. Uh, you know, you have to have that opinion out there as long as you're respectful when you bring it out, then everything should be okay. 
But uh, I think that's the initial fear from people is, is, of getting out there is being mobbed at some point for their opinion. Uh, I would rather be out there and present and, and showing people who I am and, and having them understand me as opposed to hating me for not even knowing me, for not even being there. And I think that's what happens. So you think sprinkling a little bit of you as a person into, say, your business Instagram is very important. Absolutely. It they is. see the person behind the brand, behind the business. Well, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, again, you know, it's not just it's, it's not just a, uh, uh, you know, a value statement. It is. It's not just a mission statement. It's not a vision. It's it's it, there's real people in this business and it's not just me. You know, there's 97 other people that work here and, uh, you know, I like to see them inject who they are into the uh, into the conversation because they help make this company what it is. Do you see a possible future for social media and helping you or actually someone going through the entire home buying process uh, through a social media channel? Absolutely. You see this uh, even with airlines. Uh, well, Southwest is probably one of them where you can communicate with them through Facebook, through Twitter, uh, you know, through various different platforms. And, you know, you can share your experiences that way. I think, uh, you know, social media is one of those integrations that, it, that will just continue to grow. So you're either a part of it or you're falling behind in it. I have one question before that that I think would actually segue really well. Um, so every successful person has to start somewhere. And usually that somewhere where they started, you you have people in your life who don't really believe that you can accomplish what you're saying you want to accomplish and make those goals happen. I'm assuming you're probably no different. You might've had one or two people who said, you know, that dream is too big. You can't make this happen. What's one thing that you've accomplished that you've made a huge success that someone said, mm -mm, you can't do that. No way. Uh, where I'm at right here, right now, as president of the company, uh, you know, just cause you're the namesake, just cause you're the son doesn't mean that it's, an automatic that you become president. And there were certainly doubters out there. And, uh, and I guess the doubt was there because, you know, I wasn't a leader like Cal. I was something completely different than Cal. Sure. And, uh, you know, all I would say to people is, you know, take, uh, you know, take those comments, learn something from them, use them. Yeah. You know, because that, that should help you in your growth. You know, having those doubters, having those comments available to you because, you're there to prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. So because you were not completely different, but you had different leadership and management perspectives from your dad, that's what made them think, no, yes. there's no way you could do that. That's exactly it. That's exactly why they, uh, they were doubtful. Did you ever buy into those feelings where you started self-doubting yourself and or have an imposter syndrome? Sure you do. Absolutely. You can only hear it so often. And, uh, and uh, I don't think anybody's strong enough to not let it affect them a bit, uh, you know, but uh, sometimes you just uh, you need a little bit of a break from it. And uh, you need to go and gather some perspective and ask yourself, is this what you really want? And you remind yourself why you're here, why you're working towards this, uh, this lofty goal. You know, because you can't give up on those. Uh, you can't give up on those dreams. You have to uh, you have to stay focused on them. So for as much as uh, there were doubters and there were comments, uh, you know, there were equally as many comments of, you know, you can do this. You just just stay focused. Just keep moving forward. 
So with the housing market, the way that it has been in the last five years, did you ever have doubters that said, oh, Shane Holmes is not going to make it through this housing market debacle? When you knew full well you could, you had the capacity, you had the power. Was there people creeping in going, mm, this is it? Well, there's always going to be people like that out there, uh, you know, because they think that uh, that their perspective on the market is 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 the only perspective on the marketplace. Uh, we've been around for 42 years. We we have a solid base, uh, you know, and we have, uh, you know, the, the financial strength to uh, to really weather any storm. Uh, you know, and as uh, as far as the doubters go, uh, yeah, I mean, the world is constantly changing. Uh, you know, I've been around for 31 years of this, and I've seen a tremendous amount of change where, you know, we started as a small builder, uh, you know, building, you know, 40, 50 homes a year at one point to, you know, growing up to five, 500 to 600 single family homes. And again, having a multifamily division, having a land development division, uh, that's just how things have evolved over time. And over the next 30 years, they're going to evolve or continually involve, evolve rather again. You know, and we just have to, uh, we have to stay on top of things. We have to stay in the forefront. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, we're having our fall strategic planning session in a couple of weeks. And we're going to, we're really going to discuss things like that. You know, where do we see it going? How do we, how do we shift gears from where we are right now to, uh, to stay on top of our game and remain relevant. Yeah. In all your years of success, you've really been able to go through the ebbs and flows of the real estate market. So what do you think, like, what do you see coming up in the real estate market? Are you able to kind of look at trends and say, you know, this way or that way? Uh, yes. And it's so hard to imagine it even 10 years out. But I mean, again, that's, that's why you get together regularly mm -hmm. and, you, and you plan strategically. Uh, like I said, we do it two times a year. So we're always discussing these things. But I mean, we, we get together formally and, and have a bigger, larger, uh, more well-informed conversation about it. So where do I think things are going to go? You're, you're, you're still going to see single family homes out there and uh, they just continue to evolve uh, in Calgary, especially we've seen... Uh, you know, the usage per acre, uh, you know, tighten up a little bit. So, I mean, you're seeing narrower houses, but you're seeing larger square footage houses. And people, uh, in my opinion, uh, from where it was even 30 years ago, people would buy houses, single family houses rather, uh, as an investment. Now they're buying them to live in. And we're such a, such a melting pot in this city. Uh, you know, I mean, in certain sectors, you see multi-generational families living in houses. You know, when I when I go to one sector and I, you know, we're building 2,600 square foot homes with full basement developments, which are also a legal rental suite. But you've also got three generations or possibly four generations of family living upstairs. I mean, that's a significant change over 30 years. So you have to kind of roll with it there. So that's where I see the single family side of it. Uh, multifamily will continue to grow. It'll just be a question of what direction it grows in because their cycles are somewhat different. You know, we've, uh, you know, you see uh, the mid-rise and the high-rise uh, units uh, kind of shifting gears to more of a rental market, which is either concerning or not concerning, depending on what side of things you're on. Uh, you know, as far as the for sale product in multifamily, you're seeing more, uh, more townhome, more uh, three-story walk-up structures. You know, so that's, uh, that's seen a shift here as well. Uh, but I can see that being more prevalent in the future. 
So there's lots that's going to change. It sounds like you're prepared for it, though, because uh, between the single family housing, condos or townhouses and land, Mm -hmm. uh, you're pretty set up for success in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was the uh, that was the plan. But that's why you get together and you discuss things strategically, isn't it? So you can kind of plan towards the future and and you can make adjustments along the way. So you discussed that eventually you'll be leaving the bench and you'll be stepping away from everyday operations. When do you see that happening? And then number two, what will you do with your time once it happens? Uh, It's actually, it's really a really good question. It's hard to determine when, uh, when your time has come, you just, you have to recognize it more than anything. So it could be five years from now. It could be 10 years from now. But, uh, you know, like I said, uh, when we were discussing it, there is a shelf life. Uh, what would I do after the fact? That's an even better question. I, uh, I don't have the answer for that yet. You know, uh, we, we covered this topic off a lot when I was involved with Tech Canada about that, uh, that second tree. And what, uh, you know, and this was really for the outgoing CEOs in our group. And that was probably the most difficult question for anybody to answer. So stay tuned because I have no freaking idea yet. Well, my advice for you is to start practicing your TikTok dances. You have plenty of time (laughs) for those later on. Did your dad step back like, no problem, I'm out? Or was that hard for him to transition out of that leadership role and... He did not step out or step back with any ease. Uh, you know, I think he thought he could, yeah. but uh, he couldn't. So it was difficult for him at first. When you're used to being the uh, the commander in chief for so many years, and then all of a sudden, you know, I come in and uh, and I intentionally do things different. Yeah, it uh, it was a tough transition for him. Although here we are, ten years later, and he's he's probably more comfortable with it now than he ever has been. Hola, it's time for the. Lightning round. All right. So we've got this, uh, we've got this one segment that we like to do the lightning round. I'm going to ask you like four or five questions and it's just, they're meant to just be top of mind, answer the question and let's move on. So, um, what is your most used emoji? The smirk. The smirk. Oh, I like that one. Okay. All right. Uh, what is your favorite word? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. If you could win an Olympic medal for any sport, real or fake, what would it be? Oh God. Most time on social media. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, Todd might have you beat. Maybe Todd oh. would win the silver medal on that. Who knows? Oh, competition. <laughs> <laughs> uh if you could change your name, what would it be? Oh, there's an interesting question. I changed it for you already. Shane Holmes, remember? Oh, well, that's, listen, that's too easy. That's too easy. That's okay, okay. We'll, we'll pass on that. We'll move we'll on. We'll pass All on right. that one because I never even considered that. Yeah. All right. Um, what is your hidden talent? It's not really hidden. I've, uh, I've talked to a number of people about it. It's comic book art. It's comic book art because I, uh, you know, I don't share that a lot with people, but that was the career that one of the careers that my mother thought I should pursue. So I still have the artboard. I still do the odd thing. And it just takes me away. Do you ever post any of that stuff on Instagram, Shane? No, actually, I don't. I probably should just to just to show it off a little bit. Yeah, man. I think so. 
that's a quiet passion. Awesome. Okay. One last question. One last one. If someone were to play you in a movie, who would you want it to be? Mel Gibson. I could see that actually. I could see yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Even though I should probably be playing Mel Gibson because he is older than me. But, you know, Mel, Mel can play me. What the hell? Shane, if anyone would like to learn more about you um, or follow you on Instagram, where can we find you? That's actually pretty simple. I've kept it uh, kept it that way. So you can find me at Shane Wenzel. That's it. At Shane Wenzel. Okay. That's Instagram. So then if we Google Shane Wenzel, we'll get your business page, correct? You will get the business page. You will get at Shane Holmes. Awesome. And you can find them on virtually every other platform as well. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow or subscribe to the Success Coaching Podcast and like us on Facebook at Success Magazine Coaching.